Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised, I worship you. Hi everybody, I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Baylock. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. God is our Father in heaven. Other Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. This language is scriptural, beautiful, and demonstrates the proper love we ought to have for one another as members of one spiritual family. But did you ever fully consider what it means? If we're all siblings with a common father, then that also means our father's firstborn son is our sibling. That's right. Jesus is our big brother in heaven. For a biblical confirmation and to fully appreciate what this means, let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That was Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. To begin, we always start with the SPACE method. Um, SPACE is an acronym that reminds us to consider the SP, speaker, A, audience, and C, context, of a Bible reading before we attempt an E, explanation. The speaker in this passage is Jesus, that's pretty clear, and the audience is the disciples and the crowds that followed Jesus everywhere, including the Jewish leaders, in this case the scribes. And we see that in Mark 3.20, it says, And he came home, or into a house, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And verse 22 says, The scribes, who came down from Jerusalem, were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Okay, so a few things about the scribes from our friends over at gotquestions.org, which is a great resource, by the way, for all your Bible questions. They write, Scribes were learned men whose business was to study the law, to transcribe it, and then write commentaries on it. However, the scribes went beyond just interpreting the Word of God, and they added many man-made traditions in there, kind of like in between the columns. And, you know, eventually they became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law, but at the same time, they ignored the spirit behind it. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says something very interesting about the scribes for those with kingdom ears. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's from the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus follows that statement with a series of statements, beginning with, you have heard it was said. In other words, the letter of the law, 
followed by his stronger version of it, which is the spirit of the law. For example, everyone angry with his brother is guilty of murder. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust is guilty of adultery. His point is that false letter of the law type righteousness, like that of the scribes and Pharisees, which is all really for show and misses the spirit of God's commandments, is not useful to qualify for entrance into the kingdom. Yeah, for sure, Jordan. And you know, I have a quick question about that. How does that apply to Christians today? Well, I think unfortunately we do see that in, uh, in large church organizations where um, you know, people start to do the motions of Christianity or the motions of their even denomination, and they, they sort of get caught up in this legalism. You know, we, I talk to many different denominations, particularly um, on social media, and people are always pushing their um, certain legalistic interpretations onto the group. People just come in sideways and they're like, are you keeping the Sabbath on Saturday? You know, who here recognizes the fourth commandment? Or someone will come in from a, you know, from a Baptist and they'll, they'll be pushing baptism really hard. Like, you guys aren't really saved unless you're baptized. And I think that that's the sort of um, letter of the law legalism that Jesus was speaking about that we even see today. Of course, back then it had more to do with the Jewish law. Today it has more to do with like denominational uh, dogma and particular uh, you know, um, doctrines that people have that they elevate above the spirit of what the Bible is trying to teach us. Yeah, and you know, working off that word elevate, there's a sense of superiority that certain denominations feel they have. Maybe they have better access to God behind the veil than other denominations. Right. So they, they kind of, like you said, they, they create their own interpretation, if you will, of certain verses and, and scriptures and how that best benefits their agenda, you know? And it kind of, you know, while you were speaking, it reminded me of a specific verse, a specific section in Scripture where Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? And there's one version where Jesus breaks everybody into groups of 50 and 100. And it's only in, you know, just the one verse. And you might say, well, I've kind of looked at that many times, and, you know, I've overlooked it. Why is that so significant? And, And in my opinion, again, this is just my opinion, but I believe there's obviously always a reason and a purpose for it. Jesus broke bread, he fed them, he actually gave the apostles and the disciples, which are in typology representatives of the leaders of the church, the teachers, the elders, and of course the pastors, to feed the church, right? To feed the people that attend the church. But he did put them in groups of 50 and 100. Now, I always felt that it was that way so that they all get special attention in their own group. And it makes me think of the new megachurches today how one pastor, you know, and I think that's where there's some danger there, right? Where red flags go up when you've got a church of 10, 15, 20,000 people, you know, and sometimes the flesh might just happen to come in there a little bit and, and give them a, a sort of sense of superiority, meaning that look how successful we are. We're doing it right because we have the biggest church, you know? So it's just a little warning. It, it, God doesn't directly say, make sure your church is small or right. it has to be big. But again, to your point, even today, these, these problems do exist in churches. Yeah, and it's relevant to the passage because th- that was the scribes and Pharisees. They were the, the Sanhedrin, for example. They were a small group that was given power and over a huge mass of people, and they would walk around you know, missing the spirit of the law and what, what God wanted to do, perhaps on a small level, like you're saying, because it is hard to manage such massive scale. And they, they got very, very legalistic by constantly studying every little jot and tittle of the law and, you yeah. know, ruling on this and ruling on that. And, and, you know, and Jesus spent a lot of time speaking against them. 
As for the context of the passage today, you know, this is very early in Jesus Christ's ministry, right after he had chosen the twelve, and we see that in Mark 3, starting in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him that he could send them out to preach. So, you know, putting it all together, Andy, this is Jesus early in his ministry speaking to three types of people, the crowds representing the nation of Israel, the scribes representing the nation's leadership and the issues that we discussed with that leadership. They had a lot of knowledge, but no kingdom knowledge per se. And then the 12 disciples representing those selected to receive kingdom knowledge, to know things that were beyond the law, to, the, to God's spirit of the law, to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Amen. You know, those reading today can receive these verses the same way, as milk for the crowds, as legal notes for scholars, or as meat, which are the deep truths about the kingdom, right? So it's very applicable. Now that we've considered the speaker, the audience, and context, we're definitely better equipped to give an explanation. So let's break down this passage of Scripture. Again, going back to Mark chapter 3, verses 31 and 32. Then his mother, speaking of Jesus, and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now, a couple points really quick, Jordan. Jesus had several biological half-brothers and some half-sisters too. Again, he was the firstborn between Joseph and Mary, that's for sure, right? He was the one who opened the womb, but it was a seed that was planted by God the Father. And all his other half-sisters and half-brothers were obviously seed of Joseph and Mary. So that's, you know, just a point, just in case some of you are confused. And also, if you count up the references in the Gospels, Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters that are actually mentioned. Yeah, skipping ahead a few chapters to Mark 6, we see in verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? and such miracles as is performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, or Joseph Jr., and Judas, or Jude, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, the Bible says. Yeah, so James is the most famous brother. Uh, he's mentioned in Galatians 1.19, and he also wrote an epistle that's in the Bible, a letter. Um, and then Jude is also, uh, also wrote a short epistle that's in the Bible, one chapter long, really. And, you know, as you might imagine, these brothers weren't quite quick to believe that their brother was the Messiah. It must have been a little difficult for them. But when he died and rose again, they became devout believers and disciples and martyrs of the church, um, you know, once they, had, once they had that confirmation. But I think, as you might expect, it took them a little while to grapple with their old bro- oldest brother being, you know, being God. You know, it's like Jesus said in that, in that famous verse of Scripture when he says, you know, uh, a prophet is not without honor except amongst his family, right? His right. brethren. So obviously his immediate family didn't recognize, you know, how, who he was and, and how important he was until later on, to your point. Okay, so let's move now to Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 33, 34, and 35. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. All right, Jordan. So in that 
specific verse that says, looking about at those who were sitting around him, that was his disciples. That's who he was talking about. So his brothers and sisters and probably his mom were outside, right? They were outside of the house. The house was packed. His disciples were there. And again, it's beyond the apostles. It's probably the, the other 70. So houses weren't that big. So they were probably stuffed in there. And that's who he was specifically speaking to. Yeah, and that's made more clear in the Matthew version of his passage. Uh, Matthew 12, 48 says, Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Yeah, and you know, Jordan, as we mentioned earlier, these were the ones chosen to receive the kingdom knowledge by God, chosen by God. It was God's plan. And if we want to read that, we could see it in Matthew chapter 13, and I'll pick it up in verse 10. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to the peoples in parables? Jesus answered them, to you, meaning you, my disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So we see right there that spiritually, people that were in the house receiving that teaching at that moment were special. They were chosen by God. They were chosen by Jesus Christ to know something beyond just salvation. Everyone else that was outside the house was taught, here comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's going to heal you of your wounds, of your sicknesses, of your diseases, and save your spirit. But then those who really wanted to go to the next level and get to know Jesus intimately and know the deeper truths, which we call the kingdom truths today, those were the ones that he considers his family. Those are the ones that Jesus considers his brothers, his sisters, his mother. Yeah, and returning to our text in Mark 3, Jesus says, you know, behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, they who have ears, let them hear what Jesus just said to his disciples. Whoever does the will of God is his family. In other words, whoever does works, not whoever believes in me or whoever believes in God. You know, Andy, why is this distinction so important? What is Jesus trying to say here? Well, what we see first, and in your point, is that anybody who accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, by doing nothing but having faith in their heart and believing in their mind, knowing this to be a fact, and by the way, even that is not something that we did on our own. God planted that. He, right. he called us out to hear his calling. But going the step further, here what we see is that if you want to be in his family and actually do the will of God, it requires works. And that also comes with reward. And that's the difference between just having your spirit saved or actually having your soul saved and hopefully gaining entrance into the millennial kingdom one day. Yes, I'll put some scripture together again here, Andy, and read something from Romans 8. Let's look at what it truly means to be Jesus' brother by by looking at that letter from the Apostle Paul. And I'll read, maybe you can comment. Um, This is Romans 8, starting in verse 14. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Maybe you can comment on that, Andy. Sure, Jordan. I mean, Notice how becoming a full part of God's spiritual family is conditional. It's not guaranteed. It's not locked when you accept Jesus as your Savior. Which, by the way, the lock there is that you will have everlasting life, right? John 3.16. If you accept Jesus Christ, 
everlasting life. However, here there's something conditional, right? So, and we're learning about what we're studying right now in these verses in Romans is that we're talking about being fellow heirs with Christ. Now, being a child of God is unconditional. According to the passage, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. So we're saved and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you could read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. But being a full son and a co-heir is absolutely conditional. So sons of God are those who are being led by the Spirit or yielding to the Spirit. But co-heirs must, quote unquote, suffer with Jesus in order to be glorified with him. Yeah, and Paul adds later that this suffering will be nothing compared to the glory of inheritance. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yeah, because Jesus is the big brother, right? He's the big brother because he is the firstborn, as we read in Scripture. He is the heir above all heirs. Yeah, and then jumping ahead in Romans 8, we read, this is verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Andy, can you break down all those key words, predestined, called, justified, and glorified? Yeah, Jordan, you know, regarding justified, Paul writes earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, quote, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, he follows this with these words in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3, which read, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, I repeat, justified as a gift by his grace. Yeah, this directly connects with what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes, again, only had the knowledge of sin and how to avoid it through legalism that missed the spirit of the law. They did not yet have justification which is true righteousness through accepting Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they did not have the higher knowledge of the kingdom. Amen, Jordan. Yeah, so that covers uh, justified. Um, what, what about predestined, called, and glorified, And Just briefly, if you could talk about those words. Sure. So we obviously know, all Christians know this, that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's the boss. And we also know that he's omniscient. He knows all things. We know that he's um, omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. So when we look at words like predestined, which are obviously repeated in Scripture, basically what we're reading is that God chose us. It was His plan for our destiny. So if we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried for three days and three nights, and rose from the dead, it's because God predestined that for us to believe it. It wasn't like, you know, we were so smart when we got out of college and we researched about a hundred religions. And we figured out somehow, some way, that Christianity gives us the best chance of everlasting life. No, it was because God predestined. He, he chose it for us. That's what predestined basically means in a nutshell. Now, called is a, is a very important word to know as well, especially when we're connecting it to justification. So justification just basically means in a courtroom, when you're before the judge and you get called by the judge to stand before him and he calls you out on whatever trespass you did, and he's about ready to render out a sentence, Jesus raises his hand and says, Father, Your Honor, 
it wasn't Andy. It was me. I take the blame and I will go, I will suffer for whatever, whatever it takes to clear him of that penalty. And that's what it means when we say that we're justified. Because then in God's eyes, because of the blood of Jesus, because the, the law requires blood as a sacrifice for sins, God sees the blood and then he says, you know what? That sin's paid for already because Jesus Christ died for Andy's sin because he's saying, Father, I didn't do it. Jesus paid for it. Remember what Jesus did. He who was without sin died for my sin, and that is forever. So praise God, that's what justification is. Now, the word called is critical because a lot of people think, Christians think, that called just means your invitation to believe in Jesus. But according to Scripture, kaleo, the word actually means that that was the day that you received Christ as your Savior. So if I was to go out to someone and say, you know, Jesus loves you, he, dies for your, he died for your sins, and he rose from the dead, and if you accept him, you'll be justified one day in God's sight. And if they say, no, you know, Christianity's not for me, that wasn't an example of a calling to that person. Right. But if there's another person that says, you know what, I do believe that. Something happened in my heart when you told me that. I'd, learn to, I'd like to learn more about that, because that, you, you made me feel amazing, you made me feel wonderful, but based on what you said, that would be the day that that person was called. So God doesn't throw darts in the dark and hope to hit a target. He knows exactly what he's doing. So when he calls somebody, that's the day that they receive salvation. Yeah, and then, and then glorified, of course, speaks of the kingdom and the future and the promise of that great reward if, if, we, uh, if we achieve co-heirship with Christ. So let's do some recaps and takeaways. Uh, we only have a little bit of time left. Um, point number one, what Jesus said to his disciples is what he says to Christians today who have the ears to hear it. We can literally be a sibling of the future king over all the earth. This is God's will, according to Romans. Jesus was meant to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And along with being a sibling comes the right to inherit, to be a co-heir of the glory of the kingdom. But it's conditional. We have to do the will of God, which will likely entail suffering, as he suffered, because the world is against us. That's the higher truth in today's scripture reading. That's the hope and the promise, and that is our lesson. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly.